This is Beyond Busy. I'm Graham Alcott. I'm the author of a number of books, including the global bestseller, How to Be a Productivity Ninja. And I'm the founder of Think Productive. We work with some of the world's leading companies to help people get stuff done, but more importantly, to help people to make space for what matters. Beyond Busy is where I explore the often messy truths and contradictory relationships around topics like work-life balance, happiness and success, and explore with interesting people what makes them tick. In short, this is where we ask the bigger questions about work. So it's one of the rare occasions where we have two guests on Beyond Busy this week, and they are Panos Panay and Michael Hendricks. They're the co-authors of Two Beats Ahead, What Great Musical Minds Teach Us About Creativity and Innovation. They're both leading figures at the legendary Berklee College of Music. They're both entrepreneurs. They're both musicians and designers. And as a huge music geek myself, it's safe to say I really enjoyed this one. In this episode, we take inspiration from Pharrell Williams, Bjork, David Bowie, Justin Timberlake, and many more. And behind all these inspirational stories are little nuggets that I think will help you unlock creativity and innovation whatever you happen to work on. This is Panos Panay and Michael Hendricks. So I'm here with Michael and Panos and we're, we're, we're straddling three countries and three locations right now. So I'm in Brighton as ever. Uh, Panos, you're in um, Cyprus? I'm in Nicosia, Cyprus, my home city and home country. Nice. And Michael, you're just you're you're on the other side of the time zones, just waking up in Boston in the US. That's right. Cool. And we're going to talk about your your book, which is two beats ahead of my copy. And I didn't realize that I'm actually I have the honor of talking to you guys on the day it comes out here in the UK, which I I didn't (laughs) know. So that's that's really cool. Um, So we're going to talk about two beats ahead. But let's just get to know. Um, both of you, uh, first of all. So, uh, Michael, you're a partner and you're the global design director at IDEO. Um, do you want to talk about what that involves? Um, what does is, what is your day-to-day work with IDEO involve? Yeah, so IDEO is a design and innovation consultancy, and we work uh, mainly with publicly traded companies or large businesses to help them bring new products and services into the world. Uh, you know, we've actually worked with Berkeley College of Music, and that's how Panos and I um, have worked together uh, many times over the last couple of years, but we uh, it could be with governments, with retailers, etc., helping them invent something new. My job at IDEO is um, has been different throughout the years as I've grown through the company. T- today, it's about getting the best out of our creative leaders and helping them unlock their teams, um, whether that's through learning new methodologies, creating the right conditions for success, for successful ideation, etc. So. Uh, Relevant to the book, we have a chapter about producing, and I I think of myself as a producer at IDEO now. Um, And uh, fortunately, we got to talk to some great, great inspiration and inspirational people during the interviews, like Hank Shockley and T-Bone Burnett. So um, it's a a cool parallel for me to look at. Yeah, so we'll get on to that. And um, when when I first got pitched your book, and actually it it was... at the same moment when the book then arrived through the post for me here, I was like, this is, this for me as a massive music fan is just like a dream. And I'm kind of, kind of annoyed you went one step further and was, and became uh, the people who are writing this book. Cause then you, it just opens those doors, right? Into all those amazing, 
uh, being able to sit down with those amazing people. Um, so, and then panels. So your career, what I was interested in was, um, you, you started, uh, as a talent agent and worked with Chick Career and Pat Matheny and, and many other people, and then went on to become the founder of Sonic Bids. So do you want to just talk about, uh, that background in terms of your career? Yes. I, I left Cyprus when I was 19, went to Berkeley College of Music thinking I would be, uh, the next Pat Matheny or Eddie Van Halen. Uh, alas, I was not in the cards, but I did music business. And uh, yeah. through that, I was able to get an internship that gave me both a job and a life in America. Uh, because otherwise, I would have found myself back uh, back here in Cyprus, which, you know, at 48 is not so bad. At 19, it felt like the worst thing that could possibly happen to me, to be <laughs> stuck on an island. Um, but I became uh, a talent agent through... I guess I'll say my a, a good old fashioned apprenticeship model with with the founder of the agency uh, was in charge of all of the uh, uh, global tours of big artists that I grew up admiring, like Pat and Chick, you mentioned uh, Nina Simone, Leonard Cohen. Mm. Um, I, I've been one of those few fortunate people in life where every job I've ever had I loved, and it always felt like uh, being a, a kid in a uh, in a candy store. Um, yeah. Through my experience as an agent, I got. The idea in the late 90s to start a platform that connected um, artists with music promoters, effectively taking the agency model and putting it online. Uh, and that was the foundation of Sonic Bits, uh, which grew to be, uh, at the time, the de facto platform for hundreds of thousands of artists to connect with thousands of promoters around the world. So um, I sold the company in 2013. At the time that I sold it, we had over half a million members uh, on the band artist side, uh, over 36, 37,000 music promoters, including big festivals like we were just talking about, the great, mm. the great escape in Brighton, but also South by Southwest in, in, in the U.S., and thousands of um, promoters from big festivals to small bars who are using the platform to book bands. Very proud of the fact that over a million gigs took place on the site wow. uh, in yeah. those 13 years that ran the business. The company's still around. Had you asked me, uh, whether or not a company that started in 2000, an online business, would be around 21 years later. Uh, I would have never believed it, but it's still around. Mm. Yeah. Uh, and uh, a lot of artists got their start on, on Sonic Bits, and I'm really proud of that. Uh, uh, artists like uh, Arcade Fire and Imagine Dragons and uh, American Authors, Passion Pit, many, many artists from all over the world used it as yeah. sort of their first step, frankly, into connecting with a lot of these events. And now I'm uh, in charge of global strategy and innovation uh, at uh, Berkeley uh, College of Music. My official title is Senior Vice President. Um, I'm in charge of the institution's overarching strategic plan. I oversee our expansion globally and also directly oversee our various campuses outside of Boston, which is the main campus. But we have a campus in Valencia, Spain, where we do our master's programs. Uh, we opened a campus in Abu Dhabi a year ago. Um, we have a campus in New York City that took over a legendary recording studio called The Power Station, where being an 80s uh, kid, the band Power Station actually got together uh, and, and recorded what I think is still one of the best albums of the of the 80s yeah. uh, with a great so lineup. But... The they were sat in the recording studio and they're like, what should we call this? And then they just said, yeah. Well, I guess you'll, you'll need to talk to John Taylor and Andy Taylor about that. Uh, but... Uh, I believe the inspiration was the name of the studio, which was an old power yeah. station. But a lot of iconic albums from 
uh, Madonna's Like a Virgin, uh, Avalon uh, by Roxy Music, uh, uh, Brothers in Arms, Dire Straits. The mm-hmm. Hamilton soundtrack have been recorded there. It's still a commercial recording studio that we plan to keep. And, yeah. and then, um, yeah, uh, I, I have a, a fun job in, uh, also in terms of looking at new technologies and the way that they're incorporated into, into the curriculum. Yeah. Um, it's one of those jobs that you kind of, it's both given to you and you also get to design, which is maybe the definition of happiness, or at least professional. Yeah. And then I read a thing that you've been doing together called the Open Music Initiative, which I thought sounded really interesting. Do you want to just tell us about that? Yes. Michael and I have a habit of uh, uh, undertaking projects that we know nothing about and we just kind of figure (laughs) our way through them. Um, So Open Music was launched about five years ago in collaboration with our good friends at MIT Connection Science, which is, uh, I would say, one of the top data uh, science labs at MIT and MIT Media Lab. But uh, we have brought together uh, over 200 stakeholders from the music industry. uh, And the objective is to create a shared, open way of identifying rights owners across the digital uh, supply chain of of music Um, without going into a heck of a lot of detail. Uh, right now, there is not a simple, unified way of identifying who owns what uh, across mm-hmm. all the different services and platforms through which uh, people like you and me and every other listener uh, streams uh, music. And that creates not only a uh, 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 lack of remuneration of, by rights owners, uh, but also a lot of money that is collected never even gets distributed. Um, yeah. So we ultimately believe that through the initiative, we uh, not only want to pre- bring transparency uh, as well as attribution to the rightful owners and remuneration, but really create a system where the owner of the uh, the creative identity, if you will, is the creator and not any number of different intermediaries, um, mm. if you will. When we when we started talking about it, it was actually in, you might remember when blockchain before NFT before the NFT yeah. craze today five years ago we were looking at blockchain as a way to do the kinds of things that Pontus is talking about you know whether it's um, allowing shared ownership of you know fans and artists together in the songs or creating new assets on top of recorded albums etc. So as we were looking at those opportunities, we just recognized there was even lower hanging fruit at the moment, which was. You have all these, you have managers, labels, uh, streaming service, et cetera, that don't have just simple ways to communicate and share data. Mm. And that's what drove us to begin open music. And uh, today, actually, Berkeley's prototyped it. They've got it working on campus. They have a really cool system so that students uh, can all get fair attribution for their work. Um, yeah. So it's, it's great to see it coming to that. Yeah, the, the, the student journey is transformational, and we're launching in the next month or so, but Students will be able to create a digital wallet uh, using their Berkeley credentials. Any collaboration that they are doing within the Berkeley ecosystem is attributed to them as well as their co-creator. They will be able to push their music out to what we call DSPs uh, or streaming services like uh, Amazon Prime, Spotify, Deezer, and so forth. And uh, they'll be able to track both anywhere their music is being licensed 
or ultimately how they're getting paid. It's a prototype that we plan to keep closed within the university environment. Uh, But gradually we are using our neutrality as academia to explore these new models, not just for compensation, but eventually we believe will affect the the very nature of creative expression. Yeah. Uh, so we're, we're quite excited about it. Uh, like everything else, it's an iterative process. Uh, it's, an ex- it's an experimentation process, which is all the stuff that we, we talk about in Two Beats Ahead. Mm. So just before we get into the book, so um, the other thing that obviously comes up when you do the reading about your careers and comes up in the book is just Berkeley College of Music as a, as a kind of venue, as a vessel for, for so much creativity. Um, as, as a Brit, it's one of those places that I've heard the name every now and again, but it's not kind of etched in the psyche as a particular sort of place, whatever. So do you want to just explain what happens at Berkeley College of Music? Like, why is it special? And, you know, and, and, and why does it have such a, a strong sort of place in, in sort of musical creativity? Berkeley is the biggest and I would say most preeminent institution of uh, contemporary music, dance, theater, and sound or uh, a sonic art pedagogy. It has over six and a half thousand students, over 10,000 students online. Uh, it's a 75 year old institution initially founded by an MIT graduate uh, after World War II. And it has over 70,000 alumni who have collectively won well over 300 Grammys and numerous Oscars and Golden Globes and Emmys. Uh, If you listen to any piece of music, uh, either on a streaming service or the radio or the good old-fashioned CD player or a film or a video game, I am nearly certain that a part of that experience has been either sung, written, designed, engineered, produced, arranged by Berkeley graduate. Wow. Uh, We have very famous alumni like Quincy Jones, like Branford Marsalis, uh, St. Vincent, Charlie Puth, uh, uh, Melissa Etheridge, John Mayer, uh, some of the folks from Aerosmith, uh, a lot of famous uh, uh, composers of TV, uh, including the folks uh, who have written the music for everything from the Game of Thrones to uh, to uh, a number of superhero movies uh, to uh, Pinar Tobrak, a, a Turkish uh, female composer who wrote the music for Fortnite and for uh, a number of big Hollywood movies and on and on. So yeah. um, it's... Um, it's a beautiful institution to be a part of. I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm an alumnus. Um, and my long journey led me back to Berkeley. I, I joked with our president the other day that Berkeley is sort of like uh, the mob in The Godfather. Just when you think you escaped it, they drag you back in. <laughs> um, but it's also the first uh, music school, music university, to uh, teach the electric guitar uh, as an instrument in the 60s. Mm-hmm then pioneered the teaching of sound engineering, uh, songwriting, film scoring, uh, and then eventually turntablism, and now electronic digital instruments as a proper means of creative expression. Yeah. So um, 
change and innovation has been part of Berkeley's DNA since its founding because it's been all about giving students the tools to create new things and express themselves in new avenues rather than simply interpreting something that somebody who died a long time ago wrote. Not that there's anything wrong with that, <laughs> yeah. but um, we, we, we develop creators and innovators, um, and I believe we do that better than any other music institution on the planet. Mm. And I suppose that is quite a nice segue into talking about some of the the chapters of the book and various things in the book, because it sort of feels like there's, you know, I, I, I feel like this, this book for me felt like a really natural coming together of things that I'm interested in. Um, you know, so I'm a writer, I'm constantly kind of thinking about how to, you know, change my writing, how to evolve my ideas and evolve what I'm thinking about. And I'm also just a, a fascinated and curious fan of music of all kinds. And I love one of my favorite things on um, YouTube is just, just watching interviews with musicians and, and taking inspiration from musicians that I like and like, how do they write? You know, what were they thinking about? What was the context of that? What influenced them? Like that stuff is just always like really fascinating to me anyway. But I suppose one of the things that maybe comes up in the book that, that struck me is, so you make the link between like the work that you guys do in terms of creativity, innovation, and you make this link between, you know, tapping into the musical mind and thinking like a musician. Um, and of course, creativity and innovation is at, is at the heart of business too. But one of the things that really struck me with the book is how many examples you've got of musicians who actually became entrepreneurs and business people outside of just their own music and, you know, and sort of applied that same creativity and that same creative process into other areas. So you've got Pharrell Williams and Bjork and Dr. Dre and a whole host of people in there that have set up businesses and think a couple of things in there, like the Bjork thing I wanted to talk about, cause I'd just never heard of that before. But I, do, do you see that as a really natural link? So do you think if you've got the mind to, to write hit songs, does that automatically mean there's something in your brain that would make you, you know, an interesting candidate to be a successful entrepreneur or successful in business? It's a mindset that's already there. It needs to be developed. Um, and, you know, the the book, well, a lot of it was developed in courses teaching at Berkeley. So we recognize and that we do believe this mindset exists and that musicians can transfer these skills they have to things outside of their art. We wanted to help students unlock that for themselves and recognize that their virtuosity was much uh, more expansive than they realized. Yeah. Um, because, because there are these great examples of uh, professionals that have, you know, it's, it goes beyond, as you said, it's not, it's not like a celebrity endorsement of a product, you know, that just somehow has a, a name associated with, they are literally designing, building, creating new businesses curriculums, uh, new service models, new designs. And mm. we believe that can be unlocked uh, really in anybody. Musicians just are just in the ideal situation to accelerate the development of those skills. But we believe uh, it can really apply for everyone. Yeah. Um, let's tell the Bjork story because this is something I was not aware of. Um, and even as a, as a fan of her work as well. So the 2008 financial crash and basically, Bjork comes to the rescue. Do you want to tell us the story? 
Well, she recognized. Um, I mean, you 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 know it in the UK better than we do it in the US because there, there was a, a lot of the controversy was in that uh, those banks uh, investing in Iceland. But what she recognized is that there was an opportunity to, for Icelanders to reclaim their own economy, and she wanted to do it in an artistic way. So, um, an all women uh, all women founded a capital group, a bank. Um, who <laughs> created a new fund called the Bjork Fund. And I can't remember what that stands for, but it's actually an acronym. Um, it's probably in Icelandic, so I wouldn't be able to pronounce it anyway. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, she, they invested in companies that they had, they felt they had an, uh, an emotional connection with, which is a very different way to think about investing mm. um, on the surface. Um, I, we actually believe intuition is m- how most things work. But in that, they were looking at uh, businesses they felt were sustainable, that were um, uh, championing equality, that were environmentally sound, um, as a way to help bring the economy back in good health again. And that fund actually did work, which is which is amazing. That Bjork had that vision. But you know what's I, I think exceptional about her is that she brought her artistry, her perspective um, about what she thinks the world should be like that she sings about that she now teaches about into the financial space. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah. it was able to unlock that in a genuine way. And was it her that came up with the, the phraseology of emotional due diligence? Was that her, her phrase? No, that was another, another um, uh, capitalist in our book actually, who uh, Tim Chang. And he was, he was saying when, he is interviewing founders. He's more interested in their personal journeys, the struggles they've been through, the challenges they've overcome, than he is in the idea that he's investing in. Because mm-hmm. the, because the acknowledges it is that you know investing in startups is really a bet on the people um, whom you believe will embrace an iterative process to get to the right idea. You know, both Pontus and I are founders. Um, we both had our own startups and, you know, we'll both tell you that the day, the ideas we started with were not the ideas we finished with. Yeah. <laughs> we had, I had a really painful pivot in my, in my startup where it took over two years to get us from one business model to the next. So an investor's uh, emotional diligence is looking at those people and asking, do they really believe in these, in the purpose of what they're doing? Do they really believe, um, do I believe in them that they have the resilience to make it through the changes they'll have to go through to get to the the product or the service that actually matches the market? Mm. And there's that bit in the book where you talk about that um, sort of vision that Bjork has where she's kind of looking at the world and then looking at her own view of things. And I can't remember the exact phrase, but it's something like the resonance between the reality and her reality or something. Is that, is that right? Mutual coordinates. Mutual coordinates. Yeah, yeah, which is actually a, a lyric of hers. Yeah, I mean, Bjork is <laughs> certainly one of the more poetic artists that you run into. And I I mean, I love that phrase, mutual coordinates. She is asking about the synergy that we find in the natural world, in the, in the business world, in the artistic world, and how they all align. I think she's yeah. done it yeah. amongst, um, exceptionally amongst uh, the many artists that we talk to. And that's one of those things, isn't it, that when it comes to the first germs of an idea of a startup through to a growth period in, in a startup and then beyond, 
and even if you're working in businesses, a lot of what you're doing is what Bjork does in songwriting, which is kind of joining the dots, taking the pieces, you know, and sort of curating and putting things together, right? That's like, it's a big part of, it's a big part of, of the process of, of building anything. One of the things we want to debunk with, with two beats ahead that I feel we're all taught that the way you go about developing a business is you sort of begin with the end in mind and then you sort of reverse engineer it, engineer it in some perfect way. And uh, yeah. then you ruthlessly execute it against that plan and ta-da, you have a business and you're successful. And the truth is anybody who's ever started or done a business knows that paraphrase a, a very famous um, military general, von Klausovich, the first casualty of war is the battle plan. Well, the first casualty of business is usually the, middle, the, mm. the business plan. Yeah. yeah. And what we can learn from musicians is that inspiration comes from everywhere. And creation is not a linear process, but it's an iterative process. Mm. That the magic is often in the mistakes that one makes rather than the intentions that you set out with. And if you are paying attention to those mistakes, they're not mistakes at all. They're actually little points of inspiration that you can use that eventually lead you to the very thing that you were probably meant to create. You just had no idea. And that the process in itself is the reward Mm. of any creative expression. And anybody who's started a business knows that you very often end up with a very different business than the one that you had in mind. And even uh, very uh, well-known management thinkers like Peter Drucker will say, look for unexpected success. And it's very easy to edit out unexpected success as an accident and you ignore it and you focus on all the things that you were intending to do that went wrong and how do you make them right but it may very well be that the profit margin of your business or the intention that you have as an artist that is meant to be born is in fact in that unexpected success in that happy accident that occurred that yeah. you weren't even looking for to begin with. Which is already about listening as well, right? And and that bit at the start of the book where you talk about the spaces between the notes and because it's about Pharrell Williams. Um and you say at the beginning of the book that he he kind of embodies, you know, this idea of of a musician that's that's really attuned to creativity in all its different forms. What what's so special about Pharrell well Pharrell Williams? Why did you decide to highlight him? Honest, you want to you talk about your interview with him? I've been fascinated with Pharrell and his career and he as a person in the way that he thinks of what he does as seamlessly blending together that rather than, well, here's my music, this is my collaboration with Adidas, here's a chair I'm designing... But all these are avenues through which his creativity is flowing out. And when I had interviewed him for an event that we did at Berkeley called Career Jam a few years ago, 
he literally opened his speech by saying, music is a skeleton key that opens every door. Mm. Uh, and I like that because it in many ways exemplifies so much of what we're talking about in two beats ahead that the way that a musician thinks often unlocks imagination and creativity in a way that can be expressed, not just in a musical performance or a song, but also in a shoe or in uh, a piece of furniture. And this is why so many companies are seeking Pharrell or other creators. And at its best, these collaboration at their best, they're not, gimmicks. They're not marketing marketing gimmicks. And frankly, we can all read through those. But the ones where the identity of the artist, of the creator, and the brand of the product, and the product itself, the ones where this merger happens seamlessly are the most successful ones. And I would say extremely powerful. Mm, And I, being a, a fan of both Pharrell and Adidas, I will say that some of those collaborations really capture the essence uh, of that collaboration and of both at the same time right like it was it's all like a seamless seamless merging you guys yeah. must have seen the thing um this is one of my favorite videos on youtube is um pharrell williams and maggie rogers you know that video so no oh wow so maggie rogers and she is at this point like a young i think she's like 19 and she's a student at um some music school it it may be maybe Berkeley I don't know but um she basically tells her story about how she grew up in uh, a very rural environment and then she's come and she's kind of heard dance music and really finally like she got it and her music is merging these two things she's like a singer-songwriter and then it's really electronic and it's like a 10-minute clip and it's basically she tells Pharrell this story as part of you know Pharrell's visit there and then she says, oh, I've got this one song. Do you want to hear it? And they put this song on and Pharrell's face is just like, wow, this is amazing. And it kind of went, it went viral because it kind of launched Maggie Rogers's career off the back of it. But the thing that was really interesting was like one of the first questions Pharrell says to her afterwards, he says, wow, I've got nothing I can say about that. Um, and also I, I'm really keen to see your visuals because I bet it's, I bet you have really good visuals for that song already you know and she's like she kind of says something like oh yeah there's all these colors and he's like yeah i can see the colors already (laughs) and i just thought it's really interesting how his brain is like not just evaluating that for what it is a piece of music but he's also evaluating everything that could go with it and the style and you know i just found that really fascinating just kind of watching his mind work and seeing the cogs wearing kind of I, I yeah. think she was a yeah. student at uh, NYU. Uh, okay. That's the clip you're referring to. But um, another example of Pharrell, and, and I can't help but mention this because I'm a football fan. Uh, he partnered with Adidas to reimagine uh, some iconic kits of clubs like Arsenal, Juventus, Manchester United, Real Madrid, and Bayern Munich. Yeah. And... Um, I, ho- I hope you don't hate me since you're down in Brighton, but I'm, I'm an Arsenal fan. Uh, well, I'm so, an Aston Villa fan, which has nothing to do with Brighton. That's just where I'm from. So. <laughs> you're from Birmingham. Okay. <laughs> uh, but uh, 
he reimagined Arsenal's iconic Bruce Banana Kit. Mm. Um, and I don't know if you've seen them, but they are so much fun. And in the book, we talk about the ability of musicians to take something old and infuse it with something new, yeah. remix it, and create yeah. something totally different, which is ultimately both what music or what hip-hop is about. So if for me, those kits are, if you were to take football and athletic apparel and this idea of hip-hop and putting it together, what would you come up with? And I think that collaboration mm. captures the spirit of all this. Yeah. And he's done it for a number of iconic kids. Um, and I, I just love the way that it is sort of this tangible representation in many ways of what we're talking about in, in the book, this idea to see something, reimagine it as something totally different, mash it up, spin it up, turn it around, and create something cool and different. Yeah. Um, not just for the sake of something cool and different, but because it is an avenue through which you express your creativity. And if it's authentic, people want it. Mm, yeah. I just think he's, he's such a visionary guy. I, I love it. Um, let's talk about a couple of the other lessons from the book. Um, and one that really stuck with me was Justin Timberlake's sort of mantra, I guess mantra you'd call it, a little quote um, where he says, I'm going to dare to suck here, but let me try this. So he has this idea of daring to suck. So what does that mean, daring to suck? It means to dare to try. It means that... Often, as I mentioned a bit earlier, it's the mistake that leads you to the cool hook. Mm. And when Justin came to Berkeley a couple of years ago to be our graduation speaker, which, by the way, this year, Pharrell Williams is our graduation. Right. Uh, one, one of our honorees uh, and a graduation speaker. But uh, when I was talking with Justin at that interview, I asked him about his method of songwriting. And he says to me, uh, look, I, I learned a lot working with Max Martin, who has written the most number one uh, hits uh, than any other songwriter other than uh, uh, Lennon McCartney. He was telling me the story of how he asked Max, how do you write a hit? And his answer was, just keep writing. Just keep doing it. And he says, that's my mantra in the studio. Um, I, I may hear something that inspires me, and rather than editing myself, I'm just going to go for it, and I'm going to dare to suck. Yeah. And I feel that as people were conditioned to just edit ruthlessly, we are careful about what we say, we're very intentional in everything that we try to do, we often talk ourselves out of ideas before they even have any chance of going anywhere because we think they're not going to be good. We're afraid of criticism. We're afraid of being wrong or failing. But something that we learn from musicians is that it is that bravery in failing that makes them who they are. And I think that we intuitive, intuitively, we, we, we see that as, as people, we see the bravery in getting something wrong because that's what makes us human. That, that, that's the inspiration. I always love this part of, we talked about Brothers in Arms earlier and, and being recorded at the power station. And I love this part of uh, Money for Nothing by Dire Straits, where 
Mark Knopfler is is finger picking the intro, and he just misses this note, and there's 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 this harmonic resonance that comes out, and it just feels it, it, it's what makes the whole song for me. Like if you if you play that song after this this uh, interview, you'll hear it, and it's what makes Money for Nothing such a great song. So yeah. I feel it's the mistakes that are often make something perfect rather yeah. than the other way around. Yeah. There's, so one of the other things that I really like about the book is kind of at the end of the chapter, there's like little playlists of stuff. And I actually, while I was reading it, um, was putting on, you know, Wonderlust by Bjork and, and various, you know, re- just really cool records. But one of the playlists is like, here are all the demo versions. And a lot of these are available now as part of, you know, the CD box sets and they end up on Spotify and all that sort of thing. And one of them was uh, Michael Jackson. Is it Beat It or Billy Jean? One of those early Billie Michael Jean. Jackson songs. Yeah. But there's yeah. a couple of those, isn't there, online of listening to listening to Michael Jackson. Just he's got the beat and he's got a bass line underneath him, and then he's just kind. Of, it's quite remarkable how he's just kind of making stuff up and just just riffing over the top in a studio. And I was sort of grew up in in bands where, you know, I someone else would write a song and bring it to us, or I'd write something that was a bit more fully formed. But just this idea of being in the studio and being that loose and and throwing stuff out there. And I think that's another thing that has, it just has a very close analogy for me with creativity and, and with business, right? It's like sometimes you just have to, have to kind of put something out there and see which bits are sticking and which bits aren't and follow, you just follow hunches yeah. and, and that kind of thing. In the design world, we have regular methods we use to help encourage that, you know, and, and the same ideas, this is where I think, um, why Pontus and I have so much fun writing this book is <laughs> the crossovers mm. between the practices yeah. are significant. So we will talk about, you know, embracing failure as a strategy because the, the sooner you fail, the faster you progress. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I, it's like Pontus was saying within organizations, it's difficult to, embrace that idea because it feels countercultural to your personal performance, you know, the, um, trying to look good for the boss, um, wanting to be the smartest person in the room, those kinds of things mm. that typically could happen in a business. Yeah. But the most successful people and organizations are the ones that understand that sharing ideas more quickly lead to better ideas more quickly, you know, and, and in a band, you know, that, right. You know, the ba- mm. you don't have if the band members holding back his, his, uh, or her, new hook, you know, cause they're afraid to play it. Cause they don't think everyone's going to like it. This song doesn't get written. So this yeah. just doesn't happen, yeah. right? You just, you give and you give and you give and you try and you try. That's how great innovation happens. Um, and, it, but it is a complete mind shift, shi- mind, mind shift, uh, to embrace that idea that screwing up is okay. Sucking yeah. is okay. And Michael, you mentioned there about just in the, in innovation and creativity you've got some techniques that help put people into that mindset of kind of failing faster and and throwing the ideas out there what 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 kind of techniques do you use to really get get people into that mindset well we first we have some shared agreements so we say you know um we encourage wild ideas we defer judgment on any of those ideas if you hear an idea and you think it can be better you just you literally take it like a building block and add another building block to it to help move it to a new direction. So those are um, really practical things you could do to help people have conversations about better ideas. 
But then when it moves into the taking action, that's that's the prototyping or the demoing you talked about. You talked about Michael yeah. Jackson's demo. Yeah. Or uh, there's a great one, uh, David Byrne and Talking Heads, where he just mumbles the entire song, you know, yeah. <laughs> and he's just trying to figure out the syllables um, uh, that will fit into the music. Uh, he and Brian Eno did that for the record they did together. And um, yeah. so prototyping is that it's uh, making an idea as tangible with as little effort as possible so that other people can understand your intention and then once they understand your intention, they can build upon it and take it to the next level. And they'll have yeah. different skills to add yeah. to it, whether that, you know, in music, that would be the production skill, the arrangement, other instruments. In the business world, that can be the financial model. It could be the design, the, you know, the different facets of design, the services. So uh, your motive, your main motivation is to get an idea as tangible as quick as possible so people can interact with it. And yeah. that word tangible is important because... You know, just having ideas and just stating ideas isn't enough because we all hear things differently. Like if I say, all right, think of a car. What car did you just think of? Audi. All right. I just thought of a Volkswagen. So we're different, yeah. right? And, and, uh, but that's what happens. You'll hear someone in a brainstorm say, yeah, a car delivers the pizza, you know, and you're thinking the Audi delivers, I don't know, some kind of, a, you know, a, uh, pepperoni pizza and i'm thinking yeah. uh it's a white van <laughs> mm. you know and and there's like significant differences in the idea from the very beginning so what you want to do is get people to draw them more quickly or describe them in more detail so that you can move faster and ultimately just find a way to get the ideas tangible so that people are experiencing them once people experience things then you can start to make sense of that's right what that means what it looks like and that's the whole way behind how you create music anyway Often it's about the songwriter, or let's just not even use an official term, the person that's writing the song saying, it's kind of what I have in mind. Then they'll do a, what we call a scratch vocal yeah. or a scratch demo. Yeah. Or sometimes they're just humming, as Michael was just saying. And you often think in business, how many times do we want to get something perfect before we take it to our colleagues? Because we're afraid of judgment because mm, yeah. uh, we often work in environments where you are judged uh, and either implicitly, implicitly or explicitly a mistake can uh, be detrimental to your advancement or to the way that you're perceived by your colleagues or to even your ability to express more ideas. But what if, what if we approached it differently? What if we, again, thought of it as, a process as iteration rather than as the end. I like when I talk with Michael and, and he says, look, the only way to come up with a good idea is to come up with a lot of bad ideas. <laughs> just like Justin says, the only way to come up with a hit is just to keep writing. Yeah. And often we're so fixated on the masterpiece, which is only the product that the creator chose you to see. But what we don't ever get to see is the process that led to it, which is why I like, all these uh, tapes that emerge after an artist passes away that you're getting to get a glimpse into that creative process yeah, and, and how they wove through a number of different paths before they came to something that they said, okay, now it's ready. Now I'm going to put it out there. But even once they put it out there, it keeps evolving. I, I like to use the example of Bruce Springsteen's born in the USA 
that over the years has taken all kinds of different meanings. If you listen to him playing that song mm-hmm. in on his um, Broadway solo show, you actually hear a very different song than the one that you heard in the 1980s, where people yeah. took it as an anthem to celebrate American exceptionalism, whereas you hear it in the 2010s and you see it as a lament in many ways yeah. For, yeah. for an America that had lost or has lost its way. Mm. Um, and that's what's brilliant about artists. That's, what, that's what's brilliant about brilliant business people. They know that whatever they're putting out there doesn't ever, doesn't have an end. It's fluid, it evolves, it changes. And that's the magic. Yeah. I want to talk about producing one of the chapters in the book. And you tell this story about a producer called Hank Shockley and his work with Slick Rick. And Hank Shockley's whole kind of mindset um, is just really fascinating. But do you want to just tell the story about how Hank Shockley met Slick Rick and how they produced that album? Yeah, so Slick Rick had actually been through the roster at the label with a number of producers, including Rick Rubin, <laughs> who I believe signed him uh, to make a record. And for over a year, they had tried to make make a record with other with the different producers, and none of them could do it. They just said he um, he had too strong an opinion about what he wanted, and there was a clash of creative differences in, with these different producers. So when they brought Hank Shockley on, and Hank is a founding member of uh, the Bomb Squad, which is a production team. He was a co-founder of Public Enemy, producing at this time. He said, you know, he he recognized that there has been this clash of creative differences for over a year. And so he's like, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> I'm also not going to be, you know, on the, the list of people who failed. Instead, not be next, next in the line. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to approach Rick as an assistant. And that was a really radical idea as a producer. But he said, my job, my job is to help him achieve the vision he wants. And then I'll come in and support that vision to bring it to the level of excellence I know it needs to be as a producer. Mm. Um, and so, and Hank gave us this analogy. Um, it's a metaphor that, I, that I've, I live by now, actually. <laughs> he said, all of the known universe is 3% matter and it's 97% something else. Call it antimatter, call it dark matter, call it whatever you want. Because that's the part I'm interested in when I'm producing somebody. I'm not interested in their 3%, the thing they own, the thing they love. I'm interested in the 97% around them that makes them successful, that holds everything in place. And it was fascinating because Hank told us that. We heard the same thing from T-Bone Burnett. T-Bone Burnett said he loves to understand the artist and create the conditions for them to be their best, to tap into the authenticity of who they are. Jimmy Iovine said the same thing. He said, you know, basically, I went, I, my college education came from recording uh, John Lennon, Bruce Springsteen, and Patti Smith in my first six years of professionalism. <laughs> because everything I learned, I learned about working with them. And what yeah. I learned was I was there to make them successful. Yeah, I think that's the job of the producer. I mean, we, we know producers today as the beat makers as well as the ones with visions. And there, and there's certainly people like Pharrell who are successful in doing that. But there's another kind of producer that's embodying someone like Hank that's saying, I want to cre- make the creative conditions around this person uh, right for them so that they can be their best. Mm. And some of those producers, I remember like um, John Leckie sort of became a bit of a 
a, a sort of superstar producer with like the Stone Roses and Radiohead and stuff like in the 80s and 90s. But they almost have, a, you know, as much of a part to play in the success of those records as, as the artists, right? Because they're the ones who are really creating that space to allow, you know, a, a, a band to come in and, and create that chemistry at the right time. Well, and, you know, what's interesting, Graham, when you apply that onto management, I was asked by somebody the other day, what's my management style? And I said, when I was younger and I ran Sonic Bids, I used to think that a manager was the equivalent of a conductor. You write the parts, you select the people to play the parts, you stand on a metaphorical or sometimes physical pedestal, and people better play those parts the way you wrote them. And by the way, you have the attitude that I know how to play those parts better than you do. Yeah. As I've matured, I realize I'm not a conductor. Actually, I'm more of a producer. My job is to manage conditions. My job is to create an environment through which people can individually express their talents. When you work with a famous artist as a producer, right? Say you're producing Paul McCartney. What the hell do you have to tell Paul McCartney about anything? Right? <laughs> like, you're going to talk about songwriting, you're going to talk about how to play anything, the, the piano, the bass, the guitar, how to sing. What, what do you have to tell him? I mean, your job is to bring the best out of him and help him achieve whatever creative vision he has. In talking with all these producers, with Hank, with Jimmy Iovine, with T-Bone Burnett, that was the common thread that you are there. Most people don't really know what a producer does. If you ask people, what is a producer? I mean, most producers don't even, they can't read music. They don't play music. They don't even know how to operate the board. I mean, you go there, you're like, what the hell? Why are you there? But what they're masters at is managing conditions and getting the best out of the talent. And I think that the role of a good CEO or a good manager is that ultimately once you reach a certain level in an organization, your job is not to do other people's job better than them or teach them how to do their job. What do you know? Your yeah. job is to create the environment, the conditions for that team to accomplish something that they didn't even know was possible because of that chemistry and those conditions that you've created for them. Um, and, yeah. and that has been so revolutionary for me, even in, in, in it's been the meta learning through the process of writing the book and engaging with these producers. And in the book, we have a quote from T-Bone Burnett that says, I don't care what you're playing. I care or what somebody's playing. I care who is playing it. I don't care if you're the guitarist or the drummer, I didn't hire you for that. I want you to bring you, yourself, your heart, your soul to this. And I want to get to know you as a human being because only yeah. then can I activate the best in who yeah. you are. I love, I just got to say, Panos, I love that you brought up Paul McCartney because um, when Nigel Godrich produced Paul McCartney, one of the fascinating things about that record is he, <laughs> after a couple days in the studio, he, Nigel said, send the rest of the band home. You need to play all the instruments yourself. You need to do this yourself. And that's a really good example of reading the room, understanding what's going to make the record sound different, new, fresh, and understanding what the artist is capable of. Mm. And then 
putting them that in this situation. And, you know, it, I've, I've read interviews where he says it was actually a very contentious moment, you know, like here's Paul McCartney and here's Nigel Godger saying, Nope, you know, do it this way because this is going to be the best record because of that. And it is a great record because of that. I think. Is that the, the Paul McCartney one, like the solo album? No, it's uh, called, uh, Chaos and Creation is that the right title? Chaos yeah. and Creation in the backyard. That's right. I think that's the one. Yeah. Yeah. So he so he plays every instrument on the whole whole record. He does, um, but it's not really. Uh, he he wouldn't put it as a McCartney one, two, or three record. Mm. It's uh, it's his own thing uh, because of that particular relationship. The other story that really stood out for me was, and I think this is probably a very topical time to talk about this in terms of covid and sort of coming out of covid was just the whole idea of reinvention and you you cite david bowie and some some stories about about david bowie and some of the people who've been very heavily influenced by david bowie in terms of their own reinventions you know madonna and lady gaga um and david bowie was someone who you know throughout his career had these different personas and different different phases of, of his career where he really reinvented himself in fact, the first time I ever saw uh, David Bowie live was in his his awful drum and bass reinvention in the nineties <laughs> at the Phoenix Festival. But that's a whole other story. But um, in terms of David Bowie's ability to do that, like, what what do you think it was about David Bowie that allowed him to do that? And and what can we learn about from David Bowie in terms of how to pivot and how to think differently about you know moving businesses and organizations forward post COVID? For Bowie in particular, he he understood himself, his core as a songwriter. And by understanding that was his strength, he could change the the players around him and the characters around him regularly and still play to that strength. I mean, he says in an interview, he's just like, I didn't really I wrote about maybe four things my entire career. <laughs> you know, isolation, <laughs> loneliness, search for meaning. So he knew he knew who he was. He knew he knew his his creative strength, and he also had a a uh, purpose for what he was searching for. And then the cast of characters, or the character himself, that changed throughout was an exciting dynamic. But it was almost as if uh, you know his core was the sun, and then everything we saw was the planets spinning around that. Mm. Um, and it, to your point, I, I think in this moment we're all going through that moment of asking, "What is our core?" Because all the all the norms have been uh, disrupted. Um, and it's actually a great exercise. Pontus and I have talked about this a lot for ourselves. You know, we're trying to understand who we are yeah. in a year long yeah. lockdown and what are our real creative strengths. And organizationally, there's a thing that you talk about with Bowie there about, let me try and um, paraphrase this as close as I can, but something along the lines of it's better to be the person that you are and as an organization, be the organization that you are with its distinctive voice and its distinctive customer base rather than trying to be everything, right? So you're sort of competing not to be the best, but to be the best version of you or to be you. I often tell people when they're interviewing for a job, don't don't pretend you're somebody you're not just to get the job because the organization that will accept this alternate version of you is not the one that you want to be working in anyway, mm, yeah. because then they're not hiring you. They're hiring a different version of you that you contorted to be. And either you're going to have to make the decision that you're going to be that for the rest of your time there, or you're going to be one miserable human being, 
which is sadly something that we all forget. And we all do this when we are entering relationships, whether it's with an employer, whether it's with a partner, whether it's with a business associate. And I feel at their best, these artists we're talking about, they're true to their, they're true to who they are, but who they are evolves. And sometimes they're forcing this evolution by surrounding themselves with producers, co-creators, co-writers. I mean, we talked about Bowie, but we could talk about anybody. McCartney has evolved God knows how many times or changed over the years, assuming different personas and changing them. Even how many artists decide to put out a completely different product by even changing a name. Bowie did it, obviously, with Ziggy Stardust and Thin White by Duke, but McCartney has done it by assuming the persona of the fireman. Other artists, like uh, even in country music, Garth Brooks has put out albums under pseudonyms. Um, So there's something about this chameleon-like ability that they have, which you see throughout music history, whether it's Miles Davis, today Lady Gaga, Madonna, that when these identities are captured and there's an authentic resonance to them. We respond to them as people and we still identify them as that artist because it comes from their core, even though everything else is different. Mm. But I, I feel this is what we can take away, especially at this time when, if you think about it, everything around us, all the coping mechanisms that we had, has been stripped away from us during this COVID crisis. And we've all just had to learn how to adjust, whether that is working remotely, whether that is us having a discussion with you, maybe in a format in a way that we would not have had in under other circumstances, whether it's by uh, learning how to do our job using different tools that we never had to do before at Berkeley, we had to transition six and a half thousand students and 2000 faculty remotely within a week. If you had asked the organization to do that a week before, then they would have said, are you insane? So I think that we're resilient. We're far more resilient, far more adaptable and far uh, more capable of producing a lot more. If we don't hold on to these, personas and identities so strongly that we just get trapped in them. And at their best, this is what um, amazing artists like the ones we talk about in in Two Beats Ahead are doing. And I think that the pandemic has forced a lot of us as people to reimagine who we are, uh, but without robbing us of of that authentic self that that we we all are, hopefully. Yeah. And I think both of you said it in those last few minutes there about, you know, we're, we're at our best when we really recognize what it is at our core, you know, and what's the thing that's going to be consistent, you know, beyond all the different iterations that we might go through. Um, so I just think that's a really perfect way to leave it. Do you want to just tell us where we can all get hold of two beats ahead and, and happy UK publication day, um, <laughs> again as well. Um, where can people get hold of the book? You can obviously go to your favorite online bookseller or hopefully your your favorite uh, small bookseller and, 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 and buy the book, Two Beats Ahead. And uh, on a personal note, there are two covers of the book. One 
for the U.S. edition and one for the U.K. edition. And it's been an amazing experience to see their reaction of people. So my family, which happens to be European, all said, ah, the U.S. one, no way. We love the U.K. version. And all the Americans are saying, my wife's American, she's like, what are you talking about? I love the American version. So there you go. There is a role for marketing people after all. Cool. That's really interesting. And and um, did you have your, was it your team designing that as well? Are you doing that all in-house? No, publishers on both sides uh, were the ones responsible. So you must be like the nightmare authors because of your design backgrounds <laughs> to deal with for the covers. Oh, we have, um, yeah, Panas and I, uh, we made a whole presentation. Michael wrote a medium blog post on the whole journey uh, of, the, uh, of the cover. Oh, uh, cool. If you're, really, if you're really desperate to know, you can go online and find the whole backstory of, the, of how that cover was designed. <laughs> well, as a, as, a, as, a, as a book geek and author, I'm going to go and check out that, um, that blog post and we'll link to that in the show notes. And I have to just say, as a, as a complete music geek as well, um, just, a, just a joy to read the book. So just want to say thank you for writing it and thank you for being on Beyond Busy. Thank you, Graham. Thank you, Graham. So there you go, Panos and Michael. And as you could probably tell, I really enjoyed that one. And as you could probably guess, we ended up, you know, chatting for another 15, 20 minutes, swapping stories about music and all kinds of stuff. My Bloody Valentine and Spaceman 3 and yeah, just loads of stuff. Yeah, I could just, I could talk music like all day and I often do. And I could have those guys on every week. You guys might get bored. I definitely wouldn't. But yeah, it was just such a pleasure. So uh, go and buy Two Beats Ahead. Also, I would love you to go and buy How to Fix Meetings. We are just in that very critical period right now with my new book, How to Fix Meetings which is that sort of early launch window. So the pre-order sales and then the first month of sales really plays a huge part in whether a book does well or not. So don't buy this book in two months' time. Buy it now, please. Please go and buy How to Fix Meetings. Please. I'm begging, please. And the thing about this is, right, so I put this podcast out every week. It's a labour of love. I put my own money into it. I don't want to put loads of adverts and all that stuff into it for a couple of reasons. One, I just like it being ad free. It's really starting to bug me. There are certain podcasts that I really love and I'm getting really annoyed by the advertising. <laughs> like, I just think advertising just kind of ruins everything. You know, I don't want to sound like an old Bill Hicks guy here or something, but yeah, come on, stop interrupting us with all this crap. And so, you know, there's a, you've got a choice, guys. Like, I can either start putting, you know, your Squarespace website and your, you know, your, your duvets and mattresses and all that. I can start yelling all that stuff at you, like, every week and with, with silly, you know, uh, adverts or whatever. Or just once every couple of years, just go, just go and buy the book that I put out. That's all I'm asking. So if you like this podcast and you want to keep it advertising free, which I'm very happy to do if a few of you just buy the book, then just go buy How, how Fix Meetings. Is that a deal? What do you reckon? So it's How to Fix Meetings and it is, it's on Amazon. It's on bookshop.org if you want a way of buying it online that doesn't give money to Uncle Jeff. And it's also in shops. And if you go to your local bookshop and it doesn't have a copy of How to Fix Meetings, did you know you can just order it in that will also just alert that bookshop to huh that's an interesting new book that we should probably start stocking and that's often how how um, some of these books gets get stocked in shops as well so we should be i'm told in waterstones and wx smiths already but 
Uh, if you go to one and you find, because sometimes the distribution isn't like all the stores or whatever. So if you find your local store doesn't have it, go and uh, order it in, get it stocked in. So I'd love you to just go and buy a copy of How to Fix Meetings. Please tag me on your LinkedIn, on your Instagram, like wherever you're buying that book, please share it with the world. Tag me in, I will share it back. And let's just get some noise going for How to Fix Meetings. And that's just, you know, I'm just asking for a little bit of help from you, my loyal podcast listeners, to just get this book, you know, really resonating with people. I feel like, so here's a little background story. We were in the middle of the first wave of the pandemic my business think productive was really struggling for a little while there as you can imagine and we were in full kind of survival mode and i got this email from my publisher am i going to share this on the podcast yeah i'm going to share it up they're not going to hear it it's fine <laughs> but i'm going to share it my publisher emailed me and it's the 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 chief exec of the publisher and i get on really well with him he's a he's a lovely guy and sometimes he just gets a bit carried away. And he was like, he just said, uh, could you rewrite this whole book that you've just finished and just make it all about Zoom? And then we'll release it as like this opportunistic, you know, middle of the pandemic kind of here's how to do Zoom really well kind of book, right? And like, we had just honestly done about 18 rounds of revisions on this thing. And I was so tired, just generally. And then we were in survival mode with the business. And I got this email and I honestly, I it, I was so angry. I just couldn't figure out like, it's just like, one of those ones where I was like, okay, Graham, don't reply. Just leave it till sleep on it, leave it till the morning. And so I did, I did the thing that we talk about in our workshops, which is halt, never make decisions, never reply when you're hungry, angry, lonely or tired. Halt, really good little acronym to remember. So I took a deep breath, I slept on it. And then the next day I, I sent, you know, a fairly reserved and polite email back. But I think there was like, there was still a little undertone of my absolute seething rage in there. It was just like, do you know how long we've spent on this bloody book? But what happened was out of all that, the upshot was we decided, okay, so there's no books, um, no bookshops open at this point. What we'll do is we'll delay the release of it. So it was originally due out in January, this book. And, you know, it's, it's actually had a couple of delays for different reasons at, at different times. But it feels like it's the right time. It feels like it's, um, you know, it's just hitting that little spot where for a lot of people, they're either sick of the Zoom meetings and this book helps with that and cutting down on how many Zoom meetings, but also we're getting back into the saddle of physical meetings, you know, for the first time in a long time, people are going to the office, people are meeting together. And it's an art, man, like it really is. Um, and I've seen this over the years with people that I've worked with who are just incredible facilitators, chairs, and even participants of meetings, you know, there's, there's a real art form to how we share attention generously with each other. And I think meetings is, you know, it's really the, the last bastion of undivided attention, right? And being able to share attention generously with each other. So I feel like we're coming at this at a good time and, you know, the timing is right. I often say with books, you need good content, a good cover and a good zeitgeist. I think maybe we have all three. Maybe we do. So all of that said, it's called How to Fix Meetings and I'd love you to go check it out and get a copy of the book. And uh, over the next couple of episodes, I will tail off 
my talk about how to fix meetings, that's a promise. So if you're sick of me talking about it, then uh, just I promise it won't be like this every week. (laughs) Maybe just one more. I don't know. We'll see. Yeah, if you want to go and check out the previous episodes of this podcast, it's over at getbeyondbusy.com. And we are funded and sponsored by Think Productive, which is my company. So go to thinkproductive.com if you want to bring us in to help your team. And that's it. Shout out also to Emily and to Alice for your work on bringing this together and also to Penguin for putting me in touch with Michael and Panos. Really love that one. And we'll be back next week. So until then, enjoy the sun. Take care. Bye for now.